Hey everybody, Hollywood Steve here with another episode of Legacy of Brutality, a history of horror podcast. And I'm here with my co-host, that's right, the one, the only, the most intimidating force in podcasting today, Anna Martin! <laughs> Greetings, it's your pal Anna. It's a greetings instead of a hey everybody. It feels too YouTubery. I I'm trying to steer away from that. <laughs> I don't want to look. I don't know. It's stupid. Vanity, vanity, vanity on my part. Vanity. My name yeah. is Anna. I want to sound more academic. Greetings, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I said, this is a history of horror podcast, and we're stretching that. We're stretching that because we started with John Carpenter's Apocalypse Trilogy. Undoubtedly, it's about horror movies, right? Mm-hmm. And it happened in history. Right. The next time we come we come back, we're like, all right, we're talking Halloween specials, but that's horror, we're saying. Mm, yeah. I think we made a pretty good argument. Yeah. So here I am today to tell y'all about professional wrestling and how there is a great sub-genre within professional wrestling that is horror. Yeah. Um, and it is it is horror-themed, it is horror-influenced, and it has some pretty deep, twisted roots that I really want to uncover. Now, I want to start with some caveats. I am only going to be talking about American professional wrestling, uh, not because there isn't a ton to talk about outside of America. It's because there's a ton to talk about. Mm. Uh, and this is definitely a subject I'm going to come back to uh, a, a few more times in the future because I just found so much. I found so many different avenues that we could possibly go down. But uh, I've settled into, I think, a, a pretty interesting line of history here. So I'm going to start with uh, a quote I pulled from a uh, chapter in a book called Convergent Wrestling. It's academics writing about (laughs) professional wrestling. So uh, I I found the article very interesting. And this particular line really stood out to me. And I thought could be a, a jumping off point to get into what it is I I want to get at with this episode. Uh, And this is the quote. Professional wrestling programs do not adhere to any existing television genre. Instead, they adopt several narrative characteristics from various genres and interpret them in the context of professional wrestling. This convergence not only makes professional wrestling an intriguing mix of different genres, but also directly affects the viewer's relationship with the characters. Namely, anytime viewers engage with wrestling characters, they rely on engagement patterns from a variety of television genres. Hmm. End quote. This is from Oliver Croner. Um, And I found that interesting. He was talking more about television genres and specifically about like um, uh, reality television and things like that. But I saw this as a useful jumping on point to talk about wrestling as a genre. Uh, professional wrestling, of course, is uh, entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, it is sports entertainment, as uh, uh, Vince McMahon 
uh, coined in the 90s to explain away the fact that the results are predetermined. Uh, it is a choreographed piece of entertainment that revolves around uh, largeness and violence yeah. and excess and uh, uh, heroes and villains and bigger than life characters. So yeah, it's like very theatrical, yeah. like very like jock yes. theater kid type. Absolutely, of, it yeah, has all the elements of soap opera. Uh, and reality television that you might want. But an interesting uh, genre that runs throughout is horror. Um, Horror is inextricably tied with professional wrestling from the fact that wrestling itself is spectacle. It is spectacle revolving around pain Mm. uh, and very often gore, (laughs) blood, uh, violence. Things that the human body should not undergo. Um, but that's that's in all sorts of sports. Yeah. What wrestling has that it embraces is monsters. Wrestling has heels. They're the bad guys. These This is what wrestling, uh, wrestling lingo prefers to the bad guys as heels. And there's several different types of heels. There's cowardly heels uh, who cheat and whine and, and they, they, they do everything they can to not actually have to fight. <laughs> uh, there's the narcissistic heel who, uh, you know, comes to the ring and yeah. finds easy everyone else. Easy to hate dis- that kind of personality. Yes, absolutely. It's easy to hate this person who finds everyone else disgusting yeah. and himself beautiful, etc. Um, there's the psychotic heel, this person who uh, is supposedly uh, out of their mind or they have you know undergone such trauma that they don't care and they will cause you harm etc uh, they're the authority figures who are easy to hate again because they're the boss you know they're the the millionaire they're the the person who has all the power uh, they're the brutish enforcer the person who works for the authority oftentimes or just works freelance beating people up for no other reason than the enjoyment of beating people up. Um, but the heel type that I think we have to talk about most is the monster heel. And the monster heel is the scary, big, hmm. the, the, the one who either through, uh, you know, uh, uh, their their facial characteristics, their ability to make certain faces, their intensity, their stare, etc. Whoever, whatever it is that brings across this monstrous characteristic, but oftentimes it's just size. Oftentimes yeah. it's being huge, being bigger than Striking everybody a else. Yes, I mean one of the the all time uh, greats, Andre the Giant, who in fact was a, a a face, a baby face, a good guy. Throughout most of his career, uh, he could easily become a heel because uh, no one can beat him. Mm-hmm. He's so like there's a there's a level in professional wrestling of the even the people who are most apt to believe before every the business was fully exposed, and we'll talk about when that happened. Uh, before the business was fully exposed and a lot of people believed that wrestling was real, there was still a suspension of disbelief, mm-hmm. right? 
that that you would see someone uh, the size of an Andre the Giant somehow get beaten by someone much smaller when in reality that's just not yeah. likely to happen. Um, so the, there are these early kind of monster heels, and then there's uh, other heels uh, that I would say in the psychotic range that fit into monster territory. Uh, people like Bruiser Brody um, or Ox Baker. Ox Baker had a move known as the heart punch that supposedly could kill. And in fact, uh, an opponent did die after a match and professional wrestling never allowing any time to grieve, of uh -huh. course, picked that story up and said, look, Ox Baker killed a man. That's so, it's so wild. So like they go be like this is suspension of disbelief like you're talking about uh -huh. like it goes beyond like the f physical capabilities of humans like they yeah. have powers oh yeah no like people <laughs> so Oxmaker after that would go to heart punch people and people in the audience would be like oh my in a fever just like yeah. no he's gonna murder him wow. just so, totally captured their yes. their imaginations entirely. yeah so you've got this element running through early on um and professional wrestling really like there there were gimmicks there were people who had their 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 big gimmick but monsters were largely just big mm -hmm. and scary but then we start to see a little bit later that there are some people who don't need the size they don't need necessarily to be a big hulking presence uh they can through psychology mm. um create mind a games presence. Yes, yeah. Uh, so the yeah the monster heels though they're they're pretty simple generally. They're not usually out for glory or the adulation of the crowd. They don't care if you cheer for them. They don't care if they get a belt unless it hurts somebody. Yeah. Then then it's great for them. Uh, the the monster heel wants to hurt. They want destruction. They just want to see terror in the eyes of the audience. And this is horror performance. Yeah. This is exactly what horror performance is, is trying to draw out screams rather than, you know, uh, cheers. cheers. Yeah, they want, they want, they want terror. terror. Yeah, they want kids <laughs> yeah. crying. They want. They've done their job. Exactly. If they scared you. Exactly. Yeah. So that kind of really like, it, it, it picks up in the 80s and we'll get there but i want to talk about a few things along the way that i think were influential in getting us to horror wrestling becoming a full-on angle mm -hmm. um so i want to talk about face paint Ooh, exciting <laughs> face paint is a pretty it's pretty well associated with professional wrestling um but it wasn't always it was not always necessarily associated with wrestling because wrestlers were meant to be big, tough guys. Mm -hmm. They're not going to put on makeup. makeup. Right. That's sissy. <laughs> sure. Right. Unless that's their character. Like you're a gorgeous George type who's this narcissist heel mm -hmm. who's meant to piss you off because he thinks he's so pretty. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so the the... 
use of face paint is going to become real important for the uh, horror angles in in wrestling. And so I kind of wanted to talk about face paint's use as a an element in entertainment and mm-hmm. horror entertainment because of course we've seen it in horror movies and right. horror television but corpse paint corpse paint is a style of a black and white makeup that's used by black metal bands a lot today but it originated with performers like screaming jay hawkins and arthur brown back in the 60s okay so not a new <laughs> not not, <laughs> not a new yeah thing. not new at all in fact uh alice cooper saw arthur brown perform his uh song fire in 1968 and cooper said can you imagine the young alice cooper watching that with all his makeup and hellish performance it was like all my halloweens came at once wow and so Alice Cooper, of course, uh, was in his stage performance wore wore makeup, uh, and Kiss comes about around in the seventies, and they are wearing this black and white like scary demon mm-hmm. makeup or yeah. kitty cat makeup. I, I, well, I remember seeing pictures of that as like a little kid, you know, like not allowed to listen to any <laughs> secular music right. and, and being told, yeah, that's demonic. That's like oh, satanic. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. And you see how like today though, it's, it's, you know, it, it, it evokes like a feel. If you see a band wearing it, it doesn't, it doesn't make you think, oh, those guys right. eat babies yeah. or something. <laughs> but that that was that was the feel a lot of people were getting from these bands, and those are the same types of people who are watching professional wrestling. Uh, but yeah, you got like uh, Misfits come around, King Diamond, Celtic Frost, all of them wearing this corpse paint. And around the same time in 1972, uh, a guy named Ray Arbano. Uh, a Filipino wrestler, he started doing this uh, foreign heel character. A foreign heel is, of course, bad because not American, Mm. right? So inherently racist. Well, not inherently racist because it can be Canada. It doesn't (laughs) have to be. Yeah, it literally can be any other country. You could be toying with racism. Right. You're always (laughs) toying with stereotypes of that country, is exactly how that works, then. And so. So it's like a fear of, like, the other. Yes, absolutely. And, And it's also, as, you know, as you said, it, it, it's very much going to be likely to be racist or, you know, uh, you know, uh, very, very like insensitive to cultures, etc., mm-hmm. things like that. I, and so Ray Urbano's character, Great Kabuki, who uh, was a a Japanese heel, mm. uh, and if you see the face paint, uh, it's it's racist. Um, he he was getting fear out of people. Mm-hmm. He was scaring people. They they were very much like you know worried about this guy. But that had come before he even put on the face paint. Uh, so he was already that type of heel. So I'm not going to attribute his face paint yet Mm -hmm. to his monstrosity. I'm just saying there is a line here. Uh, and I think it's interesting because some other people start using face paint for different reasons. Uh, you got people, um, like Adrian Adonis who used face paint because his 
his heelish persona was I'm gay, mm. which of course in the eighties was enough yeah. to, to be a heel. Um, and so he would use, he would use uh, makeup, but also just face paint to try to make himself look glamorous. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's real interesting. So we're, we're, we're veering into what I want to talk about. And that is championship wrestling of Florida. In 1982, had a young man from Boston named Kevin Sullivan, babyface guy, babyface. He's 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 a good guy, mm-hmm. babyface guy. Uh, you know, uh, all American type. Like, oh, he's this super good guy, etc. And uh, they work this this story in where he slowly starts to become a little more unhinged in his in his interviews, and he starts. Starts hanging out with different types of people, and then he starts painting his face. Oh no! This is slippery slope right slippery there. Slippery slope. Right into hell. His face. Yes. Kevin Sullivan, the Prince of Darkness, haunted North Florida and Central Florida uh, throughout the '80s as the primary heel in Championship Wrestling of Florida, which was a pretty big outfit. Um, championship wrestling of Florida had, you know, some TV stuff going on. They were connected with the NWA and the national wrestling Alliance, which was an alliance of several different promotions that would share airtime mm. essentially, and often share wrestlers. They'd just be moving around between them. Um, so Kevin Sullivan, he's in championship wrestling of Florida and he starts doing this Prince of darkness angle. And this is heavily heavily influenced by the satanic panic which is beginning at this time mm. um as we talked about on our um bonus features episode about uh the michelle remembers documentary the book michelle remembers came out in 1980 which is about supposed recovered memories of ritual satanic abuse um the <laughs> reality of the story is that it was a psychiatrist abusing his power mm-hmm. and taking advantage of a woman and, and using her desire to please him to get what he wanted to have a bestseller <laughs> yeah, story which about was money, fame. Yep. And he got it. And yeah. not only did he get it, he, he caused a lot of people pain and yeah. suffering and he's a terrible, terrible individual. Yeah. And it, like going beyond even his own family, you know, the panic <laughs> that uh-huh. spread to, you yeah. know, the, you know, across the country, people being put in, in prison for things that they didn't do because people were afraid that they were worshiping Satan. Yeah. Yeah. So Lawrence Pazdar, uh, hey, you boy, what a yikes. Yeah. Really just Not terrible. a good dude. <laughs> not, not what you'd call a good person. No. Uh, but so yeah, the, this uh, satanic panic starts to spread. Where uh, Dungeons and Dragons, of course, is going to lead you uh, down mm-hmm. to the grips of Satan. Yep. Um, probably going. To, uh, uh, of course, it, it was uh, Dungeons and Dragons was blamed for uh, some teenage suicides, which is odd because Dungeons and Dragons tends to make people 
feel better and have a yeah. sense of community. Yeah. Yeah. You can probably thank Jack Chick too for a lot of Yeah, and uh, we will definitely be talking yeah. about Chick Tracks yes. in the future. A lot of uh his his material was against all this demonic activity yeah. that so many people were sure was happening at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And so Kevin Sullivan was tapping into this. Uh and he was incorporating a, a lot of things. There were the throughout the 30s and 40s there were tons of just you know uh magazines literary literary marks. there were tons of magazines with uh you know genre fiction in them uh and in this case uh lots of uh horror fiction magazines mm. would have stories of satanists and uh, all these like sacrifices and things what could possibly be more scary than that right <laughs> you <right>. know <laughs> i get it right uh and so um in the 60s uh anton lavey founded the church of satan and he kind of embraced a lot of these like silly ideas mm-hmm. you know to just like as theater as like this idea of like you know uh embracing the evil embracing the the darkness and things like that and of course uh if you ever do read the the satanic bible it really just talks about how you should pursue your pleasure and enjoy your time on earth etc sounds Uh, good to me exactly yeah no levey was just embracing the spooky uh which in 66 when he founded the church of satan in san francisco the big deal you know it's Mm -hmm. like oh wow that's he's, he's really pushing boundaries here but this is also the 60s in California. We have the Zodiac Killer. And then in the summer of 69, we got the Manson family. And then the whole Manson trial is huge. It's all, it's all over the news. Mm-hmm. Vincent Bugliosi releases uh, Helter Skelter in 1974. And then the, uh, the uh, movie version is released in 1976. Son of Sam Killer, summer of 1976. Uh, Jim Jones in the People's Temple, 1978. All these things leading up to the satanic panic are all connected. People Mm -hmm. are worried. Mm -hmm. People are worried because there are people saying, I want to worship Satan. And there are murderers all over the place and cults. So they're just like drawing connections between things that. Right. And and just like catastrophizing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so Michelle Remembers comes along in 1980. And it's like exactly what I thought. Mm. There, it's like their, it. their fears are confirmed in their eyes. Yes. Tell me more. Yeah. And Put it's her on every talk show. That's Where, the, let yeah, me hear more sensational. from him. Yes. Which is entertainment. Which is entertainment. So Kevin Sullivan taps into this. He, he starts painting his face he starts yeah. gathering a cult of people around him on the yeah. like just totally unfounded yes. beliefs uh-huh. of these wow yeah and that's really smart it is really smart he starts talking about the abuda Deen, this mysterious mystical figure he worships starts talking about taking the cosmic cookie which is clearly a reference to hallucinogens He's talking about the occult and witchcraft, and uh, he's he's taking these young, pretty girls, and he is sexualizing them, and he's making them do stuff, and he's doing it all in the name of his dark lord. 
and he did it for like seven years. <laughs> well, five years. He did it for like five years as the top uh, heel. Wow. All throughout North so and it's Central like, Florida. And do, these people hated it. Like, oh, absolutely. You know, but, but they, they loved, loved it. it. They loved it. They, they needed loved, it. They loved to yes. have like something to pin their, you know, their their feelings about all yeah, this stuff. Yeah, yeah. They can say like, yeah, no, like I know that's happening. There's a dude down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go down to the the recreation hall when they got wrestling. There's a dude down there. He's got a whole cult. He had a woman down there barely wearing any clothes. He had another woman. He shaved the oh, side tell of me her more. head. I, I, can't, I, can't be, I can't believe somebody right? would do such a right? thing. Are there any more details you would like to Yeah. He share was talking about taking drugs. He threw wow. a fireball at a guy. Must have used <laughs> Satan powers. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So he, he really was tapping into those things. And he had a great cast alongside him. And very specifically, he had a great cast of women alongside him um he of course was using the fears that people had about satanic ritual abuse he's also using the fears people have of young women being uh entranced by drug use Mm. right so this is of course rooted in Sexism. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. all rude. Girls aren't in, allowed to do anything cool. Right. The idea that if a <laughs> no. woman were to do that, she yeah. couldn't really handle it. And sure. someone would take advantage of her, etc. And so he's doing this. He's show, he's he's um with with several different women, he's showing manipulation tactics and abuse and things like that. And it's it's scary and you really want to stop him you want to run out of the mm. crowd and stop this, this evil, bad guy. evil man yeah who you know it it's it's really interesting because when you listen to and i showed you some of his promos and things when you listen to his promos he sounds like manson and that mm. is he sounds like he's saying nonsense but he's saying it in the right a confident way <laughs> in yeah. a confident way that makes you go like Wait, wait. This has the cadence of something intelligent. Yeah. Is he right? Is something is there something there? But of course there's nothing there. It's yeah. gibberish. It means nothing. And I find it really interesting uh because he he um has since in interviews like talked about his influences. And his influences included metal musicians like mm-hmm. Ozzy Osbourne and Metallica, but also like Billy Idol, uh Billy Idol and his his like you know, uh, Persona was wearing a lot of like studded leather and stuff, so spikes and things. Mm-hmm. So Kevin Sullivan was always, you know, trying to integrate spikes and whatnot, <laughs> which we'll see in some others I'm going to be talking about here in a second. Uh, but that, yeah, the cast of women that he had along with him, um, including his future wife, Nancy Tofaloni, uh, to- sorry, <laughs> Nancy Tofaloni who became Nancy Sullivan, who would later become Nancy Benoit. Uh, And that entire story is a tragedy Mm -hmm. in itself that we're just not even going to get into because this isn't true crime. Um, But Nancy, she played woman in... um, in, uh, Or she played fallen angel here. She uh, plays woman in ECW later. She plays fallen angel. And she is 
just this uh, beautiful girl. She was a model before mm-hmm. she got into this. And he, you know, he is treating her like an abusive, uh, uh, you know, boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And she is playing so hard on everyone's fears by sexualizing it. Mm-hmm. And, and, enjoying like she likes it yes yes play like she's really playing these things up making people hate him so much more Mm -hmm. because he's corrupted her see this is why i i love the theater aspect of this so much like this is such a show and i i feel like maybe more people would appreciate wrestling more if they like yeah you know new yeah some of this stuff like that this is all like yeah they want this to be as gripping as possible absolutely of course they're going to do whatever they can to get people of course they're going to have this scary guy like you know enticing these young like that's wow yeah it 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 is a shame as if you do watch the dark side of the ring about uh nancy benoit it's it's two-parter and it's it's devastating but uh, it is revealed that Kevin Sullivan was abusive to her in that time, which kind of then makes that even harder yeah. to watch. But uh, moving past that, because I, we're talking history, got to kind of look past judging as I did with Ray Urbano's great Kabuki character. Um, the other woman that really helped uh, to sell this whole idea is Luna Vachon. Luna Vachon comes in as a supposed journalist who's there to cover this evil man. And Kevin Sullivan slaps her. Now, Luna Vachon is a trained wrestler, Mm -hmm. but nobody knows that. Okay. Nobody watching knows that Luna Vachon is a wrestler. They see her. She's got this sweet face. She's Mm -hmm. got this, like, you know, kind of just normal looking business hair she's wearing a business suit or well business skirt mm-hmm. because it's 1982 um but she she's selling this i'm i am just here i am i'm professional etc and he he slaps her and of course it's it's played it's wrestling mm-hmm. she takes it the way you know a wrestler would though again wrestlers are getting hurt all the time they're yeah. getting hit hard all the time yeah. um but she she then gets into it that like that's the way to to i, I i'd say look at it is like she immediately is devastated but then over time she is she's lured R- into this roped in yeah and lured into the point where they shave the side of her head. And then she starts wearing makeup, this wild makeup. And then her her voice goes from this like very feminine, almost babyish voice to this very gravelly, yeah. mean voice. And she she becomes a woman heel in a time when professional wrestling in America isn't fully embracing women's wrestling and really isn't giving them a lot of range to be heels, but they're just kind of like eye candy, right? There are at that time, two types of femme heels. You got the big bruiser 
So, you know, a large woman uh, like, say, Mad Maxine, who was around at that time, who had a mohawk and wore, you know, uh, punk makeup and stuff. So, of course, she's supposed to be scary. She's six six foot two, I think. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, or on the other side, you have the scary hag. And that is Luna. Mm-hmm. Luna is embracing this idea of ugliness. Yeah. Of pushing people away. Like, that's... That's uh, something like a, a. It's much more acceptable now for women to be able to just be ugly to mm-hmm. push people away. It's still hard, yeah. obviously, but she she's doing it in a time when it's just like, what's going on? She used to be so sweet. She used to be this lovely thing, and now this evil woman. Oh no! And she plays it so well. She is. She is she is contorting her face. She's making her voice as, as gravelly and, and, and mean as possible. And just doing everything to display ugliness. Which is a freedom mm-hmm. for her, right? She's getting to be free in this moment while horrifying the audience. So there, this whole... Uh, thing going on in championship wrestling of Florida from about 82 to 87 was, was huge. And people tuned in all like every week. They wanted to know what was going on with this, this man and his cult and, and their wild shenanigans. And of course they wanted to stop him, but you know, like not really because they want to see what happens <laughs> next week. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that, that really set, the idea in motion that this can work in wrestling. Like you can have horror angles and you can push ideas and push the envelope in, in that direction and scare people. But it is still relying on real life. Like what people think is real life. Mm. That is to say like their, their real life fears at the time it's not doing what a lot of horror does and striking at the heart of what makes us human right like not all of us are worried about satanists right. so we watch it and we see kevin sullivan and it's doing like this oh that's like, a fun character that's a fun character it's a joke right yeah so there are some who do that um i want to talk a little bit about the road warriors I would call them monsters for sure, Uh, though it's a little debatable, I would say, how horror-related they are. But they're interesting because of their use of face paint and spikes. Mm. Their overall attempt to appear more intimidating, which is wild knowing that one of them is 325 pounds of muscle and the other is 275 pounds of muscle. They're already the scariest to, people you're going to see. They just need see. a little bit more yeah. help there. Yeah, a they're little, already... A little nudge. Absolutely intimidating. terrifying. Genuine real-life tough guys who didn't get into professional wrestling at first. They were just found as bouncers who just loved beating people up. And then they became professional wrestlers who loved beating people up. Um... And they're so big and intimidating, but their their first go out as a tag team, they came out in these kind of leather daddy biker 
okay. gimmick thing, which it, it put off a vibe. Mm-hmm. Uh, more Tom of Finland than um, scary. And they weren't really digging what was going on, like the way, the direction it was going, because they are scary. They're supposed to be scary. And so the idea comes up. They're named the Road Warriors after the movie, Mad Max 2, mm. the Road, Road Warrior. They're fans of it, right? Well, there's a character in there named Wes who has a mohawk and paints his face. Maybe we try that. So, hot, or, uh, yeah, Animal gets a mohawk, starts painting his face, and Hawk gets a double mohawk. The Sick. only time this has ever happened in reality, I think. <laughs> a double mohawk, uh, because he says, if we put our heads together, then it's like one oh thing. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's delightful. Uh, and they start messing around with painting their face. Uh-huh. Which at first is really crude. Same with Kevin Sullivan when he first started messing around. They're learning how to do it. Yeah, it's kind of crude. Just lines. Just what what am I going to do? But they eventually settle on something that works. That, you know, it's it's an iconic look. Check it out. Go go look up the Road Warriors, also known as Legion of Doom. Uh their their iconic face paint look it, it started influencing other people started creating more and more face paint wrestlers uh even a tag team called the blade runners if you're <laughs> if you're the road warriors or the blade runners the blade runners uh had uh, uh the man who would eventually become sting who has a, a gimmick where he his face paint is the crow face paint okay. so horror gimmick yeah. there and then a man called the ultimate warrior who, uh, boy, <laughs> he's something not worth talking about right now. <laughs> but the, they, their influence starts to like catch on all over. And and the thing is that like we already had, you know, Kevin Sullivan and Luna Vachon. They were doing face paint. Now we got the Road Warriors doing face paint, and. That's going to come much more into play a little bit down the line. But now I want to shift gears just a little bit. Because we just talked about a man named Kevin Sullivan, who was a master at psychology on the microphone. That is, getting in the head of the audience and making them feel fear. And he was doing it by exploiting the satanic panic. There's another man out there at the same time. In fact, they worked together. In fact... At a certain point, this man was a part of Kevin Sullivan's little stable. A stable is a, a group of wrestlers who are associated, uh, whether exclusively or loosely. Um, Jake the Snake Roberts, he is so good with psychology on the mic that he doesn't have to exploit readily available news fears. He exploits actual fears. He is able to draw you in by speaking really softly, Mm. but then also intensely staring in the camera as he talks. And he's just guiding you along through his 
insane sort of ramblings, but they make sense. Instead of like Kevin Sullivan, where they don't often make <laughs> sense, these make sense, and that's scary. Jake the Snake Roberts uh, also included something that Kevin Sullivan would use, a snake. And this is something that we don't think about a lot today, because snake, pet snakes are just normal. But in the 70s, in the 80s, having a pet snake meant you were kind of a weirdo. Okay. Right? Like, exotic pets were pretty popular, and, you know, they explored that in the Tiger King thing. But uh, the, the fact that he has this huge boa constrictor that he carries around, like, nonchalantly. <laughs> that is, is terrifying. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he also, uh, at a certain point, used a king cobra to bite Macho oh Man Randy gosh. Savage. It was, it was a defanged king cobra but you know I, watching as a kid you're yeah, thinking oh there's no they're killing my favorite wrestler <laughs> they're murdering him that is horrifying yeah. yes exactly yeah. yeah so wow yeah it's interesting because like when i first started out it was like oh i'm gonna i'm gonna pull out these horror these elements of horror movies that wrestling is trying to like ape but that's not it wrestling as a genre has horror in it like mm -hmm. that's just part of it um and there's this like uncanny valley feel to some of that horror because like we don't want to see real blood, you know, like we right. want to see fake blood. So when you see real blood, it's like it's a different feeling it than is. when you see fake blood in in a horror movie, right? Because in a movie, you know that you you just you don't have to fear for the fate of a real human. Right, exactly. But, but when wrestling, that you know, they really as much as they, they yeah. are extremely practiced at, at, at what they do, yeah. like they're taking like insane, insane <laughs> abuse to their bodies. Yes. So let's talk about Mick Foley then. Uh, Mick Foley, the king of hardcore, um, who is known. For, for so many different gigantic bumps. A bump is when you take a fall. You take a big move. You take a tumble from somewhere at the hands of your opponent. That's what a bump is in wrestling. Uh, and McFoley has taken <laughs> several uh, very scary ones. But also, um, he... At a certain point, he, he he's had several different personas. Um, early on, he was Cactus Jack, who is suppose he's an unstable, like Wild West type of character, um, and that's not necessarily horror. Uh, but at a certain point, he was known as Cactus Jack Manson. Uh, Mick Foley was not a fan of this because he didn't like the idea mm -hmm. of being connected to a serial yeah. killer. But it's clear that they were trying to make him seem like unstable to the point of murder wow. right <laughs> but later later of course he would become mankind who is a horror character and we're gonna get to it i just want to go in timeline order here because i want to talk about some of the most significant horror characters that came along after kevin sullivan proved it could be successful uh, because there there were a lot of attempts uh, that that just failed, and the less said about them, the better. But the one that really broke out and really kind of changed the game was when a, a young Mark Calloway uh, left his job at the WCW in hopes 
of getting a job at the WWE. He was told, Vince McMahon told him, I don't know. I don't know if I have anything for you. Gets a call a few days later and he says, I got something for you. He's an old West mortuary guy, (laughs) an old West undertaker. (laughs) So this is interesting because this is, I believe pulled directly from a horror movie. And that Uh horror movie is poltergeist too, because if you look at the original design of undertaker and the design of Kane in, um, uh, poltergeist Poltergeist two, You'll see some similarities. Mm-hmm. You look then at the fact that the actual first match that uh, The Undertaker had, he was introduced as Kane The Undertaker. So there's a connection there. Mm-hmm. His manager, um, who is amazing. Listen, we all love Paul Bearer. If you have never seen Paul Bearer's performance as <laughs> this insane manager to the undertaker who carries an urn that somehow the undertaker draws all his power from <laughs> he it's like uncle fester meets uh, kane from, from poltergeist, poltergeist. yeah with more yeah. vibrato and he's projecting a lot. it a little bit more yeah. yeah it's it is it's it's clear that i think vince mcmahon i don't think vince mcmahon did this on purpose i don't think vince mcmahon ever <laughs> remembers like seeing poltergeist too but I guarantee he saw Poltergeist too, and then later he was like, "What if you had this?" And it was that. It yeah. was just Poltergeist too. And I, I, I don't want to undersell the importance though of the Undertaker's premiere. We talked about it um, a good bit on one of our bonus features. But the Undertaker um, is—he's around seven feet tall. He when he first came out they had him essentially in something like corpse paint they Mm. had painted his eyes darker his skin a little bit more pale the idea was that he would move stiffly (laughs) like a corpse um and that he essentially would just you know be handed out punishment but not react to it and then you know perform very large devastating moves and win uh his finishing move is the tombstone pile driver that's that's so rad. Right? So it's, uh, you know, this idea, like, just kind of snowballed. But then the thing is that uh, Mark Calloway is a good wrestler who's not just good at wrestling, but good behind the scenes at working with other wrestlers. And people respect him and listen to him. So over time, the story has to continue to develop. So we got to know more about him. Like, he draws his power from this urn. He seems to be able to summon lightning um, and doesn't seem to take much pain. That's interesting. What else is going on with him? Well, turns out he has a half-brother that he accidentally burned to death uh, when they were younger. Oh, no. He didn't die? He's oh, still no! alive. How convenient. His name's Kane. <laughs> we all get to meet him. The big red machine. That's wow. right. The whole story. Like if you if you go and look at the entire backstory of the Undertaker and Kane, uh, two two very, uh, you know, uh, 
large men imposing are you know able to carry the gimmick of this is a monster very easily uh and then this horrific backstory It's all horror. I mean, Kane, the Glenn Jacobs, Kane would eventually be in horror movies. Now you okay. see me. I, I mean, he's essentially just playing Kane. Like mm-hmm. it's not much different. But um, so the Undertaker premieres nineteen ninety. Goes over like because because kids are scared of him, but also like he's a, a credible threat. Like he. You buy that Hulk Hogan can't just beat him easily, mm-hmm. right? So he he starts to get more and more, you know, big time matches and things, and that of course leads them to think like, well, how can we exploit this more? And of course, other competitors are trying to figure out how, like, what horror avenues can we go down? Um, and I only want to talk about uh, some of the important ones, but I do want to just like take take a little side tangent because as i said earlier about the great kabuki you know it it was very racist stereotype character well there are two horror characters here that should not be overlooked overlooking them i think would be bad as they're they're both black wrestlers Mm -hmm. they're simply having to portray stereotypical voodoo characters Mm. not their fault they yeah. were handed the role. Uh, they did well with them, uh, at least as best they could. Mm-hmm. But there's just not. It's not fair. It's not fair. Yeah. But that's the thing is that you're dealing you're dealing with racists having to write or come up with ideas mm-hmm. for black wrestlers, and they just can't come up with anything except racist stuff because they're racist. Yeah. Um. Ugh. So. Uh, in Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling in, in 1990, you have Big Bad Mama, uh, who did did good with, with what she had. You, you know, not a lot to work with. And um, in 1992, WWE introduced uh, Papa Shango, uh, played by Charles Wright, who would later find success uh, as another character that's problematic. But um, this was pretty much just trying to do Papa Legba as a wrestler mm-hmm. um and and it was he wore like chicken bones and stuff it's very very much playing into racial stereotypes and like just you know crapping on on voodoo practitioners mm-hmm. uh but he did also do corpse paint which was uh, worked well like his his overall look uh was you know meant to be intimidating he's a very large man but again it just falls back on a lot of stereotypes there's not a lot to appreciate sure. about it and yeah. he I, it was called out at the time too it was yeah. called out as one of the worst <laughs> gimmicks of the year and okay. like people weren't behind it. people so. knew that it was some yes. yeah yeah um Not great then also around that time <laughs> this is interesting i i because i i didn't know that i would end up talking about doink the clown but i gotta talk about <laughs> doink the clown because doink the clown it is a horror gimmick, but it's not Pennywise. Like, no, it's not. He's they're not playing off of the popularity of the It miniseries, though. I'm sure it played into Matt Bourne, the performer's head, when he was like coming up sure. with what the character's going to be. But the be. vibe is totally different. It's way different. He the idea was spawned 
when uh, Hawk of Legion of Doom slash Road Warriors, who I mentioned before, saw him after a match with his hair kind of all wild and he was smoking a cigarette and he said, you look like Krusty the Clown. Okay. And so the idea was kind of born that he would be this evil clown Mm -hmm. like Krusty. So Krusty's not evil necessarily. Krusty's just kind (laughs) of nihilistic. But... Uh. Could have fooled me. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, he, he does. I haven't seen that much of the Simpsons. <laughs> You're right. I mean, he is evil. He's not a good person. Um, but yeah, so he 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 used the idea of this kind of nihilistic clown, and honestly, it comes across like a Heath Ledger Joker performance mm. at times. It's great. Like he's yeah. he's giving his all to this idea and. Mick Foley mentions that about Matt Bourne, that Matt Bourne introduced him to the concept of really living the character, not just like going out and trying to be this evil clown, but imagining who is this evil clown being that part in inhabiting the role, Mm -hmm. which Mick Foley would do (laughs) not long after. When he was introduced as Mankind, now Mankind was introduced through this series of interviews with uh, Jim Ross, commentator, uh, where basically they drew out his tragic backstory of you know his suffering and his loneliness and his pain and why that made him full of anger mm-hmm. and resentment and why he wanted to cause pain to others. And he's wearing this leather mask that, you know, it, it it's it's seems to be taking some maybe from uh, Silence of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. Just the idea of, of like the the mask kind of comes across as that, but it also seems to be taking from Leatherface, especially later when Mankind starts wearing a shirt and tie mm, and really kind of cost, looks like it's a yeah. whole costume. Yeah. Like, it looks much more like Leatherface uh, a, a couple a years on. Yeah. And uh, he, he plays it too. Like he squeals like a pig <laughs> or squ- like you say, almost like he squeals with delight when he's hit. Mm. Yeah. Like he's really playing oh, up the ideas. Of, yeah, exactly. <laughs> playing up the idea of this character who loves pain and he loves it because of this like deep, uh, long resentment he's had towards the world. And Mick Foley does something with this character that borders on like, attempted self-murder he allows mankind to love pain to the point where he does things that legit could have killed him uh in 1998 undertaker threw mankind off the hell in a cell this match Uh is one of the first things wrestling related that you ever showed me yeah one of the greatest matches of all time not because of the performance of the the actual like wrestling moves but because of the the idea behind the original spot of the the hell in a cell is this cage around the ring it's not connected to the ring there's some space in between the ring and the cage 
and it is 16 feet high legit 16 feet high i think they say like way higher like the commentators Mm. say it's way higher (laughs) but it's legit 16 feet high and um so the the undertaker and mankind are meant to have this hell in a cell match the entire idea being you'll be locked in the ring with this cell and no one else can get in uh and you can't get out but mankind immediately climbs up to the top (laughs) and they start fighting on the top and after a little bit of fighting the undertaker throws mick foley 16 feet off of the cage through the announcer table below and that was meant to be the end (laughs) that was meant to be the end as that is already already it's like that was a thing that you planned to do okay yes so uh he mick foley is being stretchered out uh he then uh comes to gets up off the stretcher refuses help walks back to the cage climbs back up onto the cage where the undertaker uh mark calloway uh has said he did know what was going, what was going on because uh, they had started he, raising the cage at a certain point but he was still on top oh of it gosh. anyway uh, he no idea what's but going it's like, on what are you supposed to do because you have built up this character right. that like yeah, it's, he like can't you can't not, just be like not what are you doing man now. like yeah he can't <laughs> it would totally ruin the entire him. mystique of- right exactly and that is that is an element oh. of horror to wrestling that is kind of gone now and undertaker was one of the last holdouts for the longest time of just not wanting to talk about any sort of persona outside Mm. of the wrestling persona it's called kayfabe the idea of maintaining that wrestling is real Mm. and that you are this character and that you hate whoever your opponent is or whoever you know the this like in your real life in your real life you hate them yes and so the Undertaker is—he is one of these people who maintains this. Mm-hmm. So here comes Mick Foley climbing back up the cage. The Undertaker has to engage That's with him. So they wild. begin to tussle around, and Undertaker throws Mick Foley—just a regular old body slam, nothing too crazy—and the cage breaks. And Mick Foley goes oh flying gosh. down to the, the ring below. Now, if you think the ring, is, oh, the ring's padded. It, it, is, it is wood slats with the tiniest, tiniest bit of padding. There is not a lot there. And a chair falls with him and breaks his jaw. And then the thumbtacks come out. Listen, just go see the match. (laughs) You've got to see it. It is unbelievable. My point is I am not a fan of torture porn, but that is genius. Mm. That is genius. And that is the spirit almost of torture porn. Like, what can the human body endure? Yeah, the fact that, like that he wanted to do that <laughs> like is kind oh, of what makes it he like, did things even more insane than that afterwards which is just and, and that's my point is that you there was a wildness to it the entertainment value was high but there was also concern you mm. were worried because we liked mick foley by yeah. this point we had learned enough about him the person that we liked the person 
So now we're worried about him. Mm -hmm. But he's still continuing this persona of I can take all the pain. So there's that. I think there's just a full on level of horror with certain types of wrestling, Mm -hmm. hardcore, extreme wrestling that it is impossible to capture in any other horror media Mm -hmm. because it's visceral. It's visceral while being safe. It's not safe in the sense that no one's getting hurt. Mm -hmm. It's safe in the sense that everyone is consenting. Yeah. They they have some measure of control of what's going on. Yeah. And so that type of horror, like I, I feel like just, it could be easily too much. Mm -hmm. Like, we're we're talking yeah, broken like bones. Certainly we're talking, been like abused yeah. at, at points for yeah, sure. Absolutely, uh, and I, I just want to talk about a, a couple more people just to get us into the home stretch here. I want to talk about Waylon Mercy, uh, who was uh, portrayed by Dan Spivey, previous uh, tag team partner of Mark Calloway back in the day. Dan Spivey. Um, had this character Waylon Mercy, who was based off of Robert De Niro's performance in Cape Fear, um, and he he really brought an intensity to his promos and stuff, an intensity that certainly was scary, certainly uh, menacing, um, but it didn't catch on hugely this role but it was very influential on someone important who i kind of want to like come into the home stretch on not because there's nothing in between Mm -hmm. not because there's no other stuff i could talk about but because there's too much and (laughs) i gotta cap it somewhere i gotta cap it somewhere and i was trying to find like what's what's the tie with a lot of this and it's bray wyatt uh, and we watched uh, a couple of cinematic matches. One of them mm-hmm. was Bray Wyatt versus Randy Orton. These are horror matches uh, that are shot in a cinematic way. So it's, it's not so much as the the sports action that mm-hmm. you see with a lot of matches, but you know they're shown in a way that a movie would play out. Um, and one we watched was with Bray Wyatt. And I showed you also some other stuff he did. Because I think that Bray Wyatt is an interesting distillation of all of these things. Because all of Bray Wyatt's family were in wrestling. Mm. They all worked with Kevin Sullivan at some point. Like all of them. They, That's showbiz, baby. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, then... Waylon Mercy, I mentioned specifically because he was such a huge influence on Bray Wyatt um, and and would later, you know, actually even be part of some of Bray Wyatt's Firefly Funhouse promos, which are very interestingly deranged. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why I want to end with Bray Wyatt is because Bray Wyatt is the full like distillation and 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 the 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 just embracing of horror in one wrestler like he wanted horror to be his thing to the point that he you know had a a mask made by tom savini Mm. when he won the championship he had a belt made by tom savini 
it, the guy loved horror so much and he wanted to pay homage to this tradition of horror in wrestling. So in a way, uh, and unfortunately he, he passed very recently mm. from complications due to COVID at a young age, but he, he's, his career kind of stands as a history of horror and wrestling. Um, and you know, I, I've skipped around. I've missed some people. I didn't really talk about Gangrel. Didn't really, I didn't really get into <laughs> Undertaker's Ministry of Darkness and all the wild things that happened throughout the late '90s and 2000s, where horror wrestling really starts to just get fully Blossom. embraced and blossoms and becomes this beautiful thing that today is just great. You got people like Alexa Bliss and. And uh, uh, Abaddon and, and so many others just doing really cool, scary stuff. I mean, you know, like Asuka is, is mm. like deranged and scary. She does this like scary clown thing all the time. I love it. Um, but I, I, I really like professional wrestling is just something that has long been a part of my life and a, a passion of mine. And I think oftentimes that it can get kind of overlooked as a source of um I, I don't know knowledge about genre like you you don't really think of what genre wrestling is mm -hmm. because it's all of them it's all of them yeah it's entertainment it they're trying to keep your eyes on the screen the whole time yeah so there's, there's comedy, romance and there's romance there's like, drama there's thrills there's yeah. adventure there's everything it's everything. Um, and of course, yeah, it doesn't always land and it's not always successful. And yeah, sometimes you're like, oh, I don't care about this soap <laughs> opera or whatever. Yeah. And then they just rewrite it and pretend like it never exactly. happened. <laughs> That's the beauty of wrestling is that they are never married to anything. If it's not working, they'll stop it in a heartbeat and move on. And... I think that there's something to be pulled from that. Uh, there's something beautiful to mm -hmm. be found in that. That you know, like sometimes you you get into a rut where you think, "Oh, I gotta make this thing work," or "I gotta make that thing that I've been trying to make for so mm -hmm. long. I have to make it." And Sometimes it, there's value in looking and seeing, like just it's not working. Yeah, just try lost. something different. Yeah, there's you've you, you you've lost that. That's okay. Move on. Yeah, there's something new out there that you might enjoy. You might uh, you might accomplish. You might complete. Uh, and it's uh, maybe a weird thing for me to end on a inspirational nah, message I that I gathered from horror and <laughs> professional wrestling. But um, I I uh, really enjoyed doing this, and I understand if this isn't somebody's thing and it's not what they were expecting when they tuned into a history of horror podcast but that's kind of where we're gonna be going a lot of the time i want we're gonna just poke around yeah. in all those corners that interest us yeah. and maybe that haven't been talked about as much as we want <laughs> yeah but we're also going to talk about traditional horror oh, stuff totally. including next month that's right in december we're gonna be talking about lawn Chaney. That's right. I'm very excited about this. Lon Chaney is someone that I have 
long been interested in and admired, but mm-hmm. haven't always uh, known too much about. And I've been learning about Lon Chaney. Yeah, I'm so excited to I'm, Yeah, I'm excited to get into that. Very cool, cool stuff. Yeah, and so, uh, yeah, if, if you want to, to hear us uh, every week, uh, head on over to patreon.com forward slash legacy of brutality uh, and check out those bonus features episodes. Uh, they'll add additional context to everything we're talking about. And really, you can just hear us kind of working out yeah. what it is we're going to be Follow talking about. Follow along with us on our journey of yeah. research. Yeah. I, I don't know. I find that interesting. So if you also find that interesting, yeah, go become a patron. Check it out. There's also, uh, you know, five minutes uh, previews up there if you just want to see what the episodes are like. But uh, I think you'll enjoy them. Uh, and uh, thank you all for listening to this episode of Legacy of Brutality. Uh, you got anything else to say, Anna? Uh, uh, you always throw this at me, and I haven't prepared <laughs> anything. Um, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Yes, and? Yes, yes and. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>